Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. So in this episode, we are talking to Leander Lacey, the founder and owner of Lacey Consulting Services. I'm bringing you Leander's story for a couple of reasons. One is Leander advocates for increased social science and conservation projects, which is so desperately needed in achieving environmental sustainability because such an approach strives to balance the needs of nature and humans to the extent possible. To help you get an idea of what social sciences and conservation look like in combination, Leander does share with us some examples of projects he's working on. He also talks about some of the social science methodologies he uses and some of the considerations that he gives to conservation projects as a social scientist. So the other reason I find Leander's story to be quite unique is his experience as a consultant. Many of us in the environmental space don't know that consulting is an option. And so we often end up working in nonprofit organizations or government agencies or academia. And that's why no matter what part of your journey you're in, I recommend you consider the opportunity to be an independent consultant. Reach out to Leander as well. I highly recommend it if this is something that you're considering. It's not always easy to make that shift, I think. But if you do have the financial resources and you have the network and you just want to try experimenting, creating something on your own, I think this might be a good option. So don't forget, Leander's episode is on YouTube as well. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter and links are in the show notes. Enjoy. Leander, thank you so much for making time for me. I really appreciate it on the Breaking Green Ceilings podcast. Your name reminds me of a city in Texas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I lived close to, I was like, oh, people can oh, have no the way. name Leander? I didn't know that was a name. <laughs> I mean, why not? You know, most cities and streets are named after people for the most part. So, <laughs> and I really like that name. Yeah, I've heard of Leander, Texas before. So that's pretty interesting. I actually dated someone who grew up in Leander, Texas, <laughs> which is insane. Do you I know, think about awkward? Yes. At least you're not dating someone who has the same name as you do. Right. Yes, that would be a little much. I don't know many Leanders. I only know two, and that's it. So, a, a child that was adopted from Africa, and this other gentleman who is a white guy, actually, whose name is Leander as well. So, it's a very cool name. I like it. <laughs> but this is not a name podcast. So, we'll move on to talk about your career as an environmental consultant and kind of how that came about. Mm -hmm. So we'll start with our first question, which is kind of standard for the podcast here, which is what role has nature played in your life? Mm, Such a great question. So it's so interesting because I get the question a lot of how did you get into conservation? I think because what they are really asking is how did a Black, Hispanic, gay man get into conservation? And that is where kind of like they're trying to like get as many people in the door as possible to really understand what this all means. And so I try to tell them, first and foremost, my experience is different from other people's experiences. And so when I think about conservation, when I think about nature and the role it's played in my particular life, I think about it from childhood as waking up early in the morning to go fishing with my dad and asking him to like, let's find worms in the side of the street so we can go fish with them, so we can go fishing in the lake. But, you know, it's so interesting because fishing in my cultural upbringing was less about being in nature and more about this like passage to manhood. So it was all about the technical expertise. It was also about providing food for your family and being able to have the skill sets to be able to prepare that food for your family. So when I was out in nature, sure, I guess it was all there, but I was thinking about the technical aspects of being what it meant to be in nature. And so that was a big part of growing up for me. And then as I think about it further into my career-wise, I had no intention of being a part of the conservation movement at all. I mean, it really just wasn't part of what we did. And so I was actually in community college and I was going for veterinary medicine. And so I was taking my 
initial classes. And before I transferred to a four-year university at the University of Florida, my counselor said, well, you can do cows and chickens, which is animal sciences, or you can do bears and tigers, which is a wildlife track. And I'm like, well, neither one of those are cats and dogs. So if I had to choose between those animals, I would choose Bears and tigers. Who would choose cows and chickens? Yeah, like the song. <laughs> <laughs> so I chose bears and tigers with the intention of applying for veterinarian school as a wildlife veterinarian. And they said, that's like the track you can take. And then once you get in, you can switch over to cats and dogs. I'm like, oh, cool, 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 cool. So I was taking my wildlife courses while I was taking my veterinarian courses, like my prerequisites, such as like inorganic chemistry and physics and stuff like that. And I just saw myself falling in love more and more with the conservation field and the classes I were taking. I was acing all those classes. I was doing great. But what I really noticed more than anything else was that these students and teachers wore their passion on their sleeves. And it was just so enriching to see that because I had never seen that level of passion about anything before. And then I remember one year asking one question that changed the trajectory of everything. And I said, after you do all of these great research projects about the animals and their habitat and their wildlife. Like who goes to the hood and talks to the people there about this research work? And they're like, first they're like, we don't even know what the hood is. So let's, let's break that down. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> and then the next comment that really changed everything for me was, you know, Leander, we got into conservation to not have to talk to people. And I was like, oh, there's a problem. And I'm meant to be here to help you. So I'm going to stay here and I can do more and better work for the world if I stay in this field and really bring that skill set to bear in this field. So I knew I would be, I always knew from the, at that one moment, like I'm going to be known for the person who loves people and engages with people in the conservation field. And that's pretty much what I've done. So I was going to ask you, what made you question, how are we going to communicate this information to people? And would it be fair to say that it's because, like you said, you're more of a people person. So you felt like this information would be valuable to communities in general? Yeah, I think what I learned, what I was feeling was that I was feeling resentment, I think, for these people who had such high passion for something I didn't know anything about. And I was like, why didn't I know about all the great things that you all are talking about? How come my family doesn't understand when I say the word conservation, they don't really know how to explain what that means. And I was just so frustrated that only these certain people had the ability to, the option to understand conservation. And when I looked at the classroom makeup, the demographics, I mean, obviously I'm making some assumptions. I didn't ask them what their race was, but they all looked like white people to me. And so it was like, wow, all these people get access to something I never had access to growing up in a way that allowed them to be so passionate about this whole process. And so I think I was just like, I need to get this to more people because more people need to know about it. Yeah, it resonates with me because, well, I think for me, how I started off was, we need to just take out humans from this equation. (laughs) 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 It was a little extremist when I was like a kid and I'm just like, humans are destroying everything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, As you learn about, because I went to a liberal arts college, so I was learning more about human nature Mm. interactions. And you did your thesis, I believe, or your master's in human dimension science. So that's something that's really fascinating and very interesting to me because over time, I've learned that, yes, humans are part of nature Mm -hmm. and that we are part of that solution. And the more we understand we are part of nature, the better we are in coming up with holistic approaches, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that it's difficult for people because I think everyone likes to say, well, we're just doing this work for nature's sake, but you're really not. Everything that you're doing, you're doing for people, whether you know it or not, you're doing it for people, whether it be people who just happen to share the same values as you or people who, even if they don't share the same values of you, you're still creating a space and protecting the environment for people, because if we didn't exist, nature will do just fine. They do not need us and do not need our help whatsoever. Right. We're creating and protecting this because, yes, it's because of our planet, but also self-preservation. And so we are people. The individual person who's doing any conservation project, you are a person. You are protecting the planet for you and next generations so that they can be able to see what this planet looks like as best as possible 
as undisturbed as possible. But you couldn't say that you're not doing it for, you're, not, you're doing it just for nature's sake because nature doesn't need you. It will literally be fine. You can destroy it down to like a last one seed left and it will replenish. We won't survive, but the planet and nature will figure it out. Yeah, definitely. That really <laughs> hits home because I'm just like, yeah, we're not needed. We're just mooching off nature. <laughs> And I would like to think that it's not that even that we are part of nature, that we are nature. We are nature embodied and we just happen to walk around. (laughs) Yeah, I guess we're needed for, you know, certain purposes like carrying seeds of trees and plants. We're pollinators, right? We are pollinators. (laughs) That's right. And our bodies will eventually feed the planet as well. So it's all connected. Yeah, it makes me think of those tree burial pods that people are ascribing yes. to. Would you do that? I would totally do that. I'm, I'm, yeah, I've, turn I've, into a tree. <laughs> if that's what I could do, yes, I would. Because I mean, you know, if you think about it, those funeral boxes—how much harder it's going to be for you to integrate back into the planet if you're inside of a coffin. So, like, just get me right into the soil. Just get me right in there, and let's yeah, just start. Snuggle. Let me start. Let me just. Mm, mm. <laughs> let me help the planet one last time. <laughs> oh, that was like turned morbid real quick. So. <laughs> but death is life. Death, life is, is death. life. Oh, so deep, so deep. <laughs> I love that you've taken a social science approach, and I consider myself like a pseudo-social scientist because I'm constantly looking to understand human psyche, culture, and kind of like our own social norms and structures and how those influence how we interact with nature and treat it, right? And so that's essentially what you do as a consultant. But I guess we can talk about how you integrate the social sciences into your work And then I'd really like to also learn from you about how you evolved as a professional and then decided that I want to be a consultant. So let's do it backwards. (laughs) Because why not? We can do whatever we (laughs) want. (laughs) So where do you want to start? Let's start with what is social science? Because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of environmentalists who are like in the traditional environmental fields and the way we're taught, we don't necessarily see the connection mm-hmm. between social science and environmental sciences and studies. Yeah. So what is social science and how do you integrate it into your work? Yeah, so I will go a level up and I apologize. I live in downtown Denver, so you may hear sirens go by every so often. You might hear my dog. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So in the environmental field, there's a section of social science called Human Dimensions of Natural Resources, which is what I got my master's degree in. It's what I did my thesis project on. And so what that means is that the environmental field has recognized that social sciences is critical for the success of conservation projects. And so what we've done is we figured there's no need to create a whole new social science, right, per se. So what we do is we take from the various types of social sciences that are already in existence all of their theories, all of the rigor that comes from that and the analysis process, and we apply them to conservation issues in a meaningful way. And so there's multiple types of social sciences. And so you may think of some of the classics like anthropology, sociology, and then into the applied stuff like law and education. And then you get into things like arts and humanities as a third bucket. Mm -hmm. And so what they're all trying to do is set up a process to understand human behavior our norms, our values, our belief systems, because, you know, humans are very complex. But as complex as we are, we have a lot of habits and things that stay the same. We just express them all differently. That's what makes us special. We express our values and our ethics and things differently. But there are things that are fairly consistent and that the science has shown over and over again, that if you're a particular type of person, you will tend to take this pathway in how you express your values. And so, for instance, you may have a value system, which is that I need to protect my family, right? That's like a very basic fundamental value that you have. But how you express that may look a lot of different ways. And so you may express it as, I need to protect my family, so therefore I will have firearms in the house. And so that's one way. 
Another way is I value my family. I need to provide. And so I will work long hours if necessary in order to provide for my family. And those two different views will lead you to two different paths. And so in the one path where you may feel like I need to have firearms in the house to protect my family may lead you down this path of, well, I'm also American, so I believe in my Second Amendment rights. So you may express that as a, well, the political affiliations that are most aligned with that are Republican Party, so I'm going to join that party. So now you've joined this political party affiliation, which comes with so much more than just, I care about the ability to protect my family. And so you end up adopting a bunch of values that may not be have anything to do with you, but because you've joined this political affiliation, now you've kind of lumped yourself into this bigger group of values. And so it's important for us to think about how people got to where they are based on their value system. And it may be different than how they're expressing it fully. And so that's why you might see on the political spectrum, people who are Democrats or Republicans voting for Democrat or Republican issues because they're not fully aligned with everything that is that political party. There's something core to them, though, that makes them a part of that political affiliation. But that doesn't mean that they have to completely subscribe to all the values and ethics of that particular political party. Sorry, my brain was going into the politics and I was like, I'm trying I to know, stay out of politics. <laughs> <laughs> Let me stay away. Let me stay I away from that. I was kind of stumped. I'm like, oh, 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 try not to talk about it. I can give you some examples of what that looks like, of like, what are some conservation questions that social science would be able to answer for you? So if you think about the classical social sciences, there's things like history, there are things like economics that are kind of in that classical field. And so from an history perspective, you may ask the question of what has happened historically in a country that is preventing the population from considering nature a top priority? So there may be things historically that we need to analyze first. From an economic side, you may say, how can we incentivize recreational users to pay for conserving the resources that they use? So that might be a conservation question that we're trying to answer. And then from the applied side, like education and communication, from the communication side, you may say, how do we best market our project to gain buy-in from local communities? And then from arts and humanities, you may something like humanities. The question there might be, is technology truly hurting how we engage with nature or is it helping how we engage with nature? So those are some questions that conservation or social science might answer for you. So then what questions are you asking or helping your clients ask and answer? Yeah. So a great project I love talking about all the time is my work in the Bahamas. And I'm looking at the level of trust between fishers, law enforcement, and conservation groups. And so through focus groups with fishers and law enforcement, we're trying to determine what is the historic breakdown in trust that has happened over time? What is the current level of trust? And then what do these um, stakeholders believe are the best actions to take to start to build trust? And so the reason why this is so important is trust is shown as uh, always in the top two social factors for conservation success. So if you're going to have conservation success, you must have trust. And then you also have, must have uh, engagement in community engagement. Those are the two factors that have been shown over and over again to lead to conservation success. And so you have to have effective trust. And so this project is really about building that trust over time. So we answer those questions through social science. We've done the focus groups. So many great outcomes came from that. Um, Unexpected things came from that as well. So an example of that um, is that one of the major breakdown in trust in the Bahamas is the banning of um, uh, harvesting sharks and turtles. And the reason why is because that was not based on science, at least that's what fishers believe. It was based on international outcry. So there was a viral video that went out of one person torturing a sea turtle, which obviously is horrible. Nobody wants that. And so the international outcry, though, around that was, Bahamas, you have to stop all harvesting of sharks and turtles. And so they did that to appease the international stage. But sharks and turtle are traditional cultural food sources for Bahamians. This is what they were eating. This is part of their diet. And so you've literally ripped away a food source and a cultural icon from an entire nation, um, not based on science, not because the 
population was declining, but because of virtue of um, of emotional outcry around one particular video. So it's hard because these fishers now have lost trust in conservation groups because they don't know if they're going to make decisions based on emotions or on science. Yeah. Wow. So well, number one, was it based on science? Yeah, so great question. So I think it was a mixture. So the viral video forced them to look at the science to see if they could find a need to close it down. And I would say the verdict is still out. I would say that they haven't really done the research to find out whether or not the banning of sharks and turtles was completely based on science or if it was motivated by this emotional outcry. I don't think anyone's actually spent the time to look at it because there was really no need to re-examine that particular process. But that is something that now conservation groups are looking back to, to find out, is it truly based on science? Can we lift the ban? Is it necessary anymore? So these are things that they're starting to look at as they try to think about how they build trust with these particular groups. Mm. So another interesting aspect is, it sounds like the situation is like a policy that is being brought down upon the people, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. in your work, through your research, are you looking for ways for community to collaborate with enforcement? And I think Mm -hmm. in general, but with the spirit of sustainable harvesting or management of the resource, right? I think that's the ultimate kind of goal? Yeah, the end goal in the Bahamas is to create more marine protected areas. These are going to be spaces that are off limits to fishing and they normally are like spawneries, so opportunities for the young species to have a chance to grow and so these areas they want to have off limits and then be able to work with fishers to kind of create size limits and other things so that there's a sustainable long-term benefit for nature. But I will say what's interesting is Everybody wants the exact same thing, but everyone's talking about it differently. So from the fisher's perspective, they're saying, I want to provide for my family. I want fishing to go on forever. And I want this to be passed down to next generations, right? That's what they're saying. Law enforcement is saying, we want to not have to go after fishers and put them in jail for catching the wrong sizes. We don't want to over-penalize these fishers because this is their livelihoods as well. So we want to find the right balance. And we also want a vibrant economy. And the conservation groups are saying, we just want plentiful fish in the ocean that are vibrant and healthy and sustainable. But what they don't understand, they're all saying the same thing. They're just saying it in a different way. So from the fisher's sense, it's protection of family. From conservation sense, it's protection of nature. And then from the law enforcement side, it's like this desire for balance and desire for appropriate actions to be taken. But what they're all saying is we want a lot of fish out there so we can all fish forever and there not be a need for penalties and fines and all that other sort of stuff. Yeah. I don't know where your project is, but have you told them that they're all saying the same thing? (laughs) So I finished the focus groups, gave the report to the conservation group that hired me for that. Yeah. And now we're in the planning phase. So we're going to be talking through what are the strategies, and I will be telling them exactly that. So in the report, yes, I did say that. But it's good to actually have some workshopping sessions where we actually unpack that slowly, because even if I say that out loud, it really does take a long time for people to really understand. So we have to unpack it a little bit slowly. Yeah. As you're talking about collaborating with communities and the value of giving consideration to like human values and balancing that with environmental needs. What would you say is the advantage of incorporating social science versus just doing like the pure conservation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to convince some people to like come over (laughs) to the other side where it's, (laughs) that's my perspective. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a lot of ways I would say I would answer that question. But the first thing that comes to me that I talk a lot about to people and individuals is that conservation has to be relevant to all people. So Protecting a piece of land, let's, let's go land for a while since we're on the ocean. Let's go back to the land. We can protect a land, piece of land, call it a national park, put a conservation easement on it and say, well, this is protected forever now. So we're good to go. We don't need to do anything. We didn't need to talk to people. It's protected. It's over. In 50 years, 100 years, a few generations, there's now a pipeline that goes right through that particular conservation space. And you're like, what happened? We protected it. Well, it turns out you didn't invite anyone to be a part of the process. 
You didn't get anyone else excited about this project. So now that you're dead and gone, there's no one there to have a voice for this space. And they just see it as, well, it's just a bunch of trees. Why would we protect it anymore? I have the political will. The people have the political will to change anything. So if somebody wants that pipeline strong enough, it will happen. And because you didn't invest any time engaging with people and helping them to understand why this conservation project was important, they had no reason to pass on that knowledge to the next generation. And so what you find and what you see, really, I would say there's a limitation to what the type of conservation that you're talking about can go. And we've seen it. We're living right now in the world of that kind of conservation. And we still have climate crisis. We still have declining populations of wildlife. So clearly there's a limitation to that kind of conservation that isn't working and is leading to the planet that we have today. And so for that conservation to be effective, we need to be more collaborative and we need to be more open to staying relevant to changing times. And if we keep down the path that we're on right now, where we're doing the same kind of conservation that we've been doing forever, we're going to speed up and get right to that point that no one wants to get to with global warming or climate change because we're not being diverse around how we think about conservation issues. Yeah. Now, I like that it's passing on from one generation to the next, the values of conservation, yeah. but not necessarily in, in the traditional sense that we've applied conservation, but knowing that you have the agency to protect this or to see that it's managed well enough. And it goes back to what I talked to you about earlier, which is that question I asked a long time ago. After you do all this great research, who talks to the people in the hood, right? So by not bringing this, all these people into the fold, I think there's, we're missing two things. One, what I just said, that they're not going to have a connection to and desire to protect because they don't know it and they don't feel it. But the other part of it is, I don't know how to encapsulate this the right way, is that every person has something innovative to bring to the solutions of this planet. Every single person, even the janitor at the 7-Eleven that's cleaning the floors at night, they have something integral to add to this conversation and we are completely ignoring them and not giving them the space to be a part of the conversation. That one person may change all of climate change if we gave them a chance to be a part of the conversation but we haven't. And I would say that the conservation movement and the way that conservation has been done so far has really been exclusive and elitist and not inclusive and equitable. Yeah, you're so right. It's this knowledge has been kept away from us and it's only some of us who somehow stumble into it or we're passionate mm -hmm. about it and somehow found our way into like, you know, a college program where are we the only ones who care about this? <laughs> you know, I know I'm not. It's just, right. it's been this really intentional process of keeping people out. And I know like, at least in Kenya and also in India, based on my experiences is folks who care about the environment and want to be part of those initiatives. It's not really encouraged by society, but also because like the structures don't allow you to be successful because it's hard to find a job and how do you yeah. feed yourself? And so it becomes less attractive. I think those kind of systems further than prevent us from seeing that we play a role in this as well and yeah. integrating each and every person into the solution. And I know people who are very passionate about conservation since they were a small child and just didn't even know that they could turn it into a job. That's one thing. And then there are people like me who just never even knew this field existed, period, stumbled into it, like you said, 100% stumbled into it, and then made a career out of it. And I think this is not just conservation. I think this is nonprofits in general suffer from this kind of like, we all have bleeding hearts, like we all care so much, which is great. But at the same time, we do need to pay people equitable wages. We've kind of capitalized like turn it into a capitalist system, NGOs, so that the best way for us to succeed is to pay the least amount of money. And especially for nonprofits in the environmental field, these are people who just love the planet so deeply. They will get paid pennies and make it work somehow because they love it so much. But that isn't a style of living that most people are willing to do. And when you think about low-income families and diverse families, 
who just want to provide the best for their family and they don't want to continue the cycle of poverty. It's different when you choose to be in poverty, which is what some of these nonprofit employees are doing, versus you've lived in poverty and you're trying to break that chain of poverty. You're trying to get out of it. And so conservation doesn't look lucrative when we market it as, hey, you get to save the planet. Yeah, we're not going to pay you much, but that's the way it is. But at the same time, I'll just quickly say, CEOs of these nonprofits are getting hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So let's be realistic that there is still a privilege gap and a wealth gap within nonprofits. That's unfair that employees are getting paid nothing, but the CEO is getting paid two, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year. There's a little bit of, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is there, but it's not right. So (laughs) (laughs) I had some select words, but uh... (laughs) it's unfair. It's unfair. Right? It's unfair. Yeah, I feel like this could be a whole other conversation, like a whole other episode where we're talking about some of the dysfunctionalities or dysfunctions within like the nonprofit sector and especially the environmental sector. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I realized later on in my life once I started pursuing environmental studies was that, wow, this is actually like an elitist field. Nobody Mm -hmm. here comes from a struggling background. And so I think this is where we also fall short in the solutions that we come up with because we only know what we know. And so people who end up, like you were saying, going into these environmental professions, they don't necessarily come from struggling socioeconomic backgrounds. They have support from their family and they can earn less or whatever, but they still have financial and familial kind of support system that they can rely on. And I think that that's just so unfortunate, at least for the environmental sector, where we could create more kind of like buffers and support systems for like communities that are like EJ communities, for example. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, mm-hmm. you know, let's build your capacity in collecting data on air pollution or water quality in your neighborhood. And let's teach you how to draft, you know, legislation or how to give a testimony at your city council or state legislator. That's right. That's right. You know, I have a podcast called the Green Mind Podcast. And so my listeners are like, oh yeah, this is a normal conversation for Leander. I'm not sure what kind of listeners you have, but Jedi talk is like something we talk about all the time. So justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And one of the things that, the reason why this is important is a lead into your other question that you asked me, which is why I got into entrepreneurship around this process in general. And so I would add that conservation groups are have a lot to learn still, and they have a long way to go. They all recognize that Jedi is an issue for internal issues and also externally. But even though they recognize these issues, what we've found is for a lot of the largest organizations, they've continued to get wider over the years and not more diverse. And so even though they know it's a problem, they still haven't changed in a way that's going to be effective. Their board still looks a certain way, their senior leadership still looks a certain kind of way, and the majority of their staff looks a certain kind of way. And so the reason why this is important, though, is that, A, you don't see yourself as an employee. If you're a person of difference, you can't see yourself. You're pretty much the only most of the time, and it feels horrible. But you're also not dealing with the daily pressure. So no one else understands that you're dealing with everything that comes with being a person of difference, like person of color, LGBTQ, different religious faiths, everything. All of those things come into play that you deal with on a daily basis on top of what your colleague is dealing with on a daily basis as well. And so we have compounded issues that we're dealing with on top of everyday issues like relationship problems and my friend didn't call me or my mom doesn't love me enough. Like that's an everybody problem, right? That's not like an individual person that can say, well, I had it rough too because my best friend moved away when I was 12. Like, okay, yeah, so did mine. Like we all had an issue like that happen. But you also didn't have racial slurs or homophobic slurs sent your way. You didn't have these additional negative things that you have to deal with on a daily basis. So why I switched over to entrepreneurship. So working for a very large environmental nonprofit that I was really excited to be a part of turned into this death by a thousand cuts of microaggressions while working with them of just On a daily basis, it felt like I was in some way under pressure, under a little bit of an attack, or someone says something that triggers my historic trauma that has to do with my identity groups. 
and eventually leading to this situation where I got this new brand new supervisor. So I've been in this organization now for seven years. I was working on the global stage for the organization. I felt great or what I was doing. And I said, hey, why don't we think about having an internal contracting position for social science because we don't have enough social science at this organization. The head CEO was like, yes, that's a great idea. Let's do that. We'll find you a new manager and we'll get this set up. So I get into this position with this brand new supervisor who actually never supervised anyone before. So it was a first for this person. And we had a check-in. There's a lot of things I'm leaving out, but ultimately we get to this check-in one day and they say to me, you know, Leander, I don't know if you should call yourself a social scientist anymore. And I was like, whoa, like what? And that came from who knows where it came from, but I know that this person had a PhD in social science and I had a master's. I knew this person grew up in a very different kind of lifestyle, I'll just say that for now, than me for socioeconomic class. And I also know that when people in this organization thought about social science, they always thought about me. Like, oh, Leander's a social scientist, let's hit this person up. And so I was getting a lot of popularity around social science in this organization. And so I don't know the reasons, and I never really asked this person why, but I know that for me, that was the last cut for me. Like, I remember when that person said that to me, I was looking in a mirror in my head of an image of myself, and then that mirror completely shattered because someone told me that what I thought I was, I was not, and I gave them full power to say that that's true. And so it just really hurt me a lot. It went through like spiraling depression. It was really bad for a long time. And then as part of like recovering from that trauma, I said, I have to leave and I have to re-energize and re-empower myself because I feel like nothing. And so I couldn't go work for another conservation organization because I feel like it would be the exact same thing over again. So I said, the only thing that works for me right now is to become a consultant and become an entrepreneur and be in this space in a way that's authentically me 100% all the time because I forgot what that looks like working for another organization. So I figured out what my strengths are. I put together my business plan. I said, I'm going to do it. I left my organization. And I've been doing this for about two and a half years now. And I have just exploded. I have to say no to projects now because I have too many projects. And what I find the, my favorite is my number one client has been the organization that I left. And so now they're paying me to do the work that they could have gotten for much cheaper if I were still working there. And so it's really a full circle for me of finding my power, realizing that being authentically you 100% of the time is the only way to go. And I find that being an entrepreneur allows me to work in this conservation field in a way that's the most effective and gives back to communities. Wow, that's uh, sort of like a story of the phoenix rising from the ashes type of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's what it feels like. Yes, I definitely felt like ashes. <laughs> that's what it yeah. felt like. So I'm glad to finally be out of that. Yeah, there's something very liberating about being a consultant because you kind of determine your own agenda, right? That's and right. you don't necessarily have to deal with some of the typical BS that comes with working with some organizations, for example, mm -hmm. the microaggression. So I'm just curious to know for others who might not be in a position where they think that they can get out, but are experiencing what you experienced, how do you sustain? Mm -hmm. Yeah, such a great question. So one is, if you can find your allies, wherever you're working, find out who is supportive of you, who understands some of the issues that you're going through, reach out to them, talk to them, and make sure you have that kind of friendship there. Second, this is about living your values. Conservation is important, critically important to everyone and to this whole planet. You don't have to work in the conservation field to contribute a lot to conservation. Actually, there are people who are not in the conservation field who are probably contributing more because of the work that they do in some way. And so understand your values and understand when to leave. You need to know yourself and know your own worth to say, you know what, this isn't worth it. This isn't worth everything that I'm sacrificing. So I'm going to walk away. And the other part of it is, if you do decide to stay in it, understand your reasons as to why you're staying in. Know that you are likely in some way sacrificing something. But for some people, that sacrifice is enough. And so remind yourself of what you're sacrificing and what you're sacrificing for, because some people have the ability to perceive what's beyond me, 
what's after my death and after I move on? And what can I lay the foundation for? And someone gave me a great example of what this looks like. It's like a party, right? When you're the host, you have a ton of responsibilities and you have a lot of things to get ready for, a lot of things you have to prepare for. Even though no one's even there, you're just by yourself, right? And then the first person shows up. So that's one type of person. You can be the person who's throwing the party and getting everything ready and then building the house and, and getting all the appetizers ready, right? Doing all that work. Then the next person that shows up is the first person to show up. So they're the ones who are there. They go, oh, over here, I'm going to help you set the plates. I'm going to get things ready for you. Still, no one's there. And it's just the two of you having this conversation. And then the next part are those who are kind of arrive on time. Like, oh, we showed up. We knew there was a party. We're here on time. They have to kind of do all the initial conversations. They're pouring the first glasses of wine or whatever. And they're kind of getting the party warmed up. And then there are the people who come way later who are just there to party. Like, look, I'm just here for the party. I'm not trying to help anyone do anything. I'm not trying to set anything up. I'm just here to be my authentic full self at this amazing party. And so, and same thing for conservation. You need to know, like, who are you? Are you the person who's going to set the house up and get everything ready? And so that when the next generation comes, they have a place to actually come to? Or do you want to wait and say, you know what? I don't want to be that person, but I'll be the person who helps that person by coming in later and staying around and building some foundational elements, but I don't want to build the whole house, you know? And then are you the person who's just like, okay, I see it. We're early adopters. We know it's important. We're going to show up. Or are you the person that says, you know what? I don't have time to build a house. I don't have time to put down any plates. I don't have any time to get people warmed up. I just want to show up after everything's done and have a good time. So it matters who you are in that story. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think there are some people who have left the environmental field because of their frustrations with it. But I would often ask, like, when is it okay to just say, like, I don't want to do this anymore or Mm -hmm. this is worth it. But I think the answer lies in the individual at the end of the day, right? It's not a set like, oh, if you're experiencing microaggressions (laughs) every day and (laughs) Mm -hmm. one Mm -hmm. thing is like, they're just everywhere. The bias, the discrimination, and I'm not trying to say that as a way to like minimize the the impact, Mm -hmm. but it's just you just have to build a certain amount of resiliency. Yes. <laughs> like yes. maybe 70% or something. And then if it goes to 80%, you're like, this is rubbish. <laughs> no, I'm out, right? <laughs> I mean, for me, I, I figured that out very much later in my life and I didn't know I was experiencing microaggressions or, you know, harassment. I didn't know yeah. only because of the culture that I came from. So it's great that you recognize that and then there was then that final straw that broke the camel's back where you're like all right no yeah enough is enough it is akin to i don't like saying this because i don't have it but i don't have any other words is that it feels like an abusive relationship you don't know you're in it until much later i mean you don't always see the signs of it but it's still an abusive relationship the entire time and so i like in my experience to that of an abusive relationship where i just didn't know how bad it was until later So I have one more question about your consulting, and then we can talk briefly about your podcast, which I totally forgot to talk about. (laughs) I'm so sorry. And then we can go into the lightning round where we have about like 15 minutes. Is that good? Perfect. We're good? Okay, cool. So one last thing is with starting a consulting, especially in a field that always complains about how there's no money. (laughs) what kind of calculations did you do to be like oh being a consultant would be a viable option for me mentally emotionally and also financially yeah so great great question so i like i said before worked for a fairly large organization there's a chapter in every state in the united states and they're in multiple countries and so before i left i said you know what let me find out if there's even money available for the type of work i want to do so i actually reached out to various chapters and said hey do y'all have money for consulting around this particular issue? And every chapter was like, yeah, we have money, but we don't know who to give it to because we don't have social scientists on tap. We've gone to academia and we give the money to them and we find out that they're on a different timeline than we are. We need people who know how to get social science projects done within a six to eight month timeframe and they need to be effective and they need to understand conservation. And I realized like, wow, all this money is just sitting there and no one's taking it because no one knows who to give it to. I'm like, oh, well, you can give it to me. I'm right here. So, 
Me, 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 me. Which is why I mentioned earlier, my initial thought was we would create an internal consultant for that organization. So they would save a ton of money and they would have someone in-house who's expert in their organization and in conservation. And so instead, by leaving, I've been able to be that for multiple organizations out there. So there are a lot of organizations who have understood. So I guess it's one seeing the trend. So the trend was that social science was being more integrated into conservation. B, you already, wherever you're working right now, start to do your research. Find out what they would need if they wanted your services. Find that out now and then call around to other organizations to find out what they might be looking for right now and if they have any funding available for it. And then when you leave your organization or whatever you decide to do, that's why you also never burn bridges. You cannot burn bridges. <laughs> I was going to say, it's... burn the bridge. <laughs> burn it all down. No, I'm kidding. Burn it all down. You cannot do that. Conservation yes, is way too not. small. Do not. Way too small for that. Yeah. It doesn't it serve works. anyone it, any good. Yeah. 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 I will say my favorite line from a Beyonce song, the very last line of her song, Formation, is always stay gracious. Best revenge is your papers. So never burn those bridges because if you really feel like so frustrated and angry by them, show what they're losing by you being successful. Be successful. And that's the best thing you can do. If you can help it, don't run away from the field because there's so much more that you can give. But just do it on your own time in your own way. Yeah. And so then going into your podcast, Green Mind, what's the idea behind it and what's the premise? Yeah. So the Green Mind podcast is all about bringing the world that I've got to live in for the last 15 years or so of this intersection of social justice, environmental justice, and bringing it together in a way that seems effective. And so for some people, that looks like environmental justice. For other people, it's like two separate things that you bring together and they call it something different. And either way, what I wanted to bring to people is this this idea that you don't have to choose between environmental love and people love. Like you can love both equally and there's a way for you to work in that nexus of both. And so I interview individuals around the world who are focused on that nexus of helping people, but doing also conservation action in some way, or at least contributing to the improvement of our planet. Yeah. I've conducted research on... So when I before I started this podcast, I was like, oh, I wonder... What's the the lay of the land as far as environmental podcasts go? And what's the representation of marginalized groups, including people of color? And it's actually kind of like a working Excel sheet that I have. And so far, I've like gathered 141 environmental podcasts. And I've broken down the information. Of course, I don't have the self-identifying information, but based on what I can see... But what I found is about 70% of podcasts are hosted by white men and or white women. And about 30% or so is just by people of color. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's even less than that. I should know this because I did. (laughs) I gathered (laughs) the data, but it keeps changing. So I think it's like 15% for women of color and then about... 5 to 7% for men of color. Mm-hmm. So it's also less than 30%. It's around like 25-ish or so. It's so interesting. Anyways, I can share those, those statistics, yeah. but it's overwhelmingly white. And it's concerning for me because then, again, it goes back to what we were saying in terms of like the perspectives of the non-white groups is not as much like discussed or in the mainstream, right? So mm-hmm. I'm really glad that you're in addition to my spreadsheets <laughs> <laughs> and also the conversation, right, around environmental yeah. and social justice and the intersection between those two. So is there anything else that you want to share about how fulfilling your consulting has been to you before we go into our lightning round? Yeah, last thing I'll add is that for environmental social scientists, they're not really finding a lot of jobs right now because conservation groups are, I would say, afraid to hire them because they don't know what to do with them full time, all the time. And so what I love about being a consultant is I hired my first employee. Her name is Marlissa Crow. She came out of Iowa State. And just to kind of give, to be there to cultivate this young mind, I mean, not young, like she is so smart and intelligent, has so much wisdom. And to give her a space where she can be a social scientist, where she can be an environmental social scientist, 
is so rewarding to me because it just feels like she doesn't have to fight me. She doesn't have to like be like, well, this is why I think environmental social science is important. You don't have to prove anything to me, boo. Just do it. Just do your work and be happy every single day doing something that you went to school to do. Because what I found is a lot of my colleagues who went to school with me are not doing environmental social science work at all because they can't find jobs. And so I feel so grateful to be able to provide jobs to the next generation of environmental social scientists and with the ethos of Lacey Consulting Services, which is all about steeping it in Jedi and making sure that people are included in the whole process. So I just am glad that I'm making my small little ripple in the water and that I'm hoping will spark a change, an entire change in the conservation movement. Oh, that's so great. As you were talking, I was like, I wish he was my professor. Because <laughs> 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 I learned about human dimension sciences like way later, like mm. after I was almost done with grad school. And my supervisor was like, you should do your PhD in human dimension sciences. And I was like, I have no more school. <laughs> I'll just find people like Leander to teach me. That's right. Yeah, it's awesome that you're advocating for this. It's so important. I think that's really the missing link to mm-hmm. developing more like sound and empathetic solutions to our environmental problems, really. So let's go into the lightning round here. All right, ready. You ready? You ready? <laughs> I think, I hope. What have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? Ooh, so I read, it was hard to get through, but Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, was such a powerful book, and it really set the tone for my journey, my discovery, because I think everyone's on their own Jedi discovery. And by the way, I say Jedi, A, because I'm a nerd and I love Star Wars, but also because that stands for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. But I say Jedi for that reason. But I think that I had not really gone on a good enough journey, but Ta-Nehisi's Coast Between the World and Me was fantastic to really help set the stage for my growth in Jedi. I spot it behind you. Yes, yes, there it is. Those are three books that have influenced you the most. They are probably the three books that have influenced me the most. Yes. (laughs) What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Well, this is an interesting thing. I wake up every day at 5.45. I have not set an alarm since I was 12 years old. My body wakes up at 5.45 every single day, even on the weekends. It's kind of nice, but not on the weekends. Yeah. I think that's a superpower. (laughs) (laughs) I open up and I jump out of bed. Like I am just such an active morning person. It's a little out there. So yeah, I get most of my work done between, I would say, 6 o'clock and 8.30. So when people are just starting their day, I'm pretty much done with my day by that time. And I don't get like a flurry of emails. Nothing distracts me during that time. So that's a habit that I have that really has helped me to be consistent and get a lot of work done. Yeah, I am not a morning person. However, (laughs) I have been trying to wake up at 5.30 and do some work. It really does make a significant difference. It does. It does. Yeah, within like two hours, like you're saying, like six to eight, like you get a lot done. It's really shocking. It is. Other thing I'll add, I'll do a plug for a site called Focusmate. Focus mates, you can go and sign up for a 50-minute session, like 24 hours of the day. And you're basically connected with someone anywhere in the world. And you just work for 50 minutes with your videos on. And so that has increased my productivity by like 150%. It's fantastic having that accountability person on the camera with you while you're working. And it's not creepy at all? It's not creepy at all, surprisingly. <laughs> it's like, surprisingly who's stranger watching me like, do my work? Is there anything on my face? <laughs> No, they're also working and they're not just staring at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. But that's a good one. Focus mate. Yeah, focus mate. Yeah. I'm gonna check it out. What's the best piece of advice you've received? Ooh. I would say the best piece of advice. I didn't understand the advice fully when it was given to me. It wasn't until I really became this entrepreneur where I really understood, which is always bring your authentic self to work every day or really to the world every day. And I think I was separating my lives out. And I think as a person of color, a person of difference, you tend to do that because for safety issues, like, oh, when I'm in this area, when I'm in this space, I look like this. But when I'm in this space, I look like something different. But what I've realized now is I, I don't have time anymore to separate my identities out. They're all one identity. There's only one Leander. There's not different Leanders. 
out in this world. And the more I align to just one Leander, the more success I have in this world. Yeah. It's one of those things that you hear so much, be your authentic self, but it's one of the hardest things to do. You it know, is. and sometimes they're like, what is my authentic self? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The more you talk about yourself and be authentic and genuine and just be honest with people that you meet, the easier it gets. Like I tell people I'm a nerd all the time and it actually like generates so much conversation and people connect with me better. Yeah. A nerd of what? Between no now. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So let's talk more. So besides waking up at 545 every single day. What else is your superpower? Ooh, okay. So I have something called hypersynthesia. So what that means is if I physically see you like cut your finger right here in any kind of way, my nerves will also pulsate in the exact same location. No way. Yeah. So what it is is that I have mirror, everyone has mirror neurons and those mirror, and I, like as if I knew where they are, I was like touching them. And so the mirror neurons are what activates when someone yawns and then you physically yawn in response to that, right? Minds are hyperactive. And so anything you do physically, my body will try to replicate and copy. And so anytime I see something where it's like pain, my body will go off in the exact location, like not even like somewhere it'll be like the exact location that it happened on your body and then also i can same thing with like pleasure like if you're happy or if i can see someone getting a massage i will actually feel super relaxed as if i'm getting a massage myself Dang. i know you're like a, a real life empath <laughs> it's pretty much a real life empath absolutely yeah it's called hypersynthesia it was first discovered in a couple in england where the wife was like talking at the doctor like her husband was in pain. She's like, yeah, I feel it right here in my arm too, like everyone else does. And he was like, the doctor was like, nope, no one feels that except for you. Like that's not normal. And so what they've realized over the years that people who have this ability don't know they have it because when we're kids and someone falls and scrapes their knees, we all do the same thing, which is we all go, right? And so we all think that you all felt it like we did And so there is no reason for us to believe that that's not something that's universal because we all do a universal thing that seems like we've all felt that same pain. Yeah. That's super cool. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I'm just going to cut my hand right now. (laughs) (laughs) The negative, the downside, if I was truly a superhero, every time I beat up my foe, I would be beating myself up. So (laughs) World peace in your case. (laughs) Well, this has been a pleasure as we close out. How can we follow you on your journey? Yeah, so you can find me through my website, which is where a lot of people go to. It's uh, thegreenmindpodcast.com. You can also find me on Instagram at thegreenmindpodcast. Actually, it's just greenmindpodcast. And then I am on every podcast app that you can think of. So Awesome. And then is there anything else that you want to add before we put a pause to our conversation here? No, just I'm so excited to be a part of your podcast. I know that you'll be joining me on my podcast soon. Yes, so we're going to have another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so my podcast comes out every other Tuesday. So does yours. And it turns out that we're on every alternating Tuesday for us. So our listeners, if you love this conversation, then you will have a wealth of conversations to come because you can listen to us every Tuesday. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. There's so much, I don't want to like complimentary conversations. Yeah. I really do enjoy your podcast. It's It opens up my mind some more to just mm. these issues around environment and social justice because for me, I didn't necessarily see the direct linkage, but those conversations you're having do help kind of like strengthen that brain nerve or whatever, that seeing that That's connection. Right. Thank you. I'm so thankful for that. Same thing for your podcast. I can't wait to continue listening to all the great things that you have going on. And you already have such a wealth of past podcasts. I know. I'm only on episode six. You're like, I'm on episode 50. Like, oh, okay, great. I'm so tired. Don't do it. Don't do it. It was a madness. But here we are. So now I can you know, right. relax a little bit. Yeah. But yes, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm so glad we got connected through Andy Kraken, who's also a past guest on the Breaking Green Ceilings podcast. So it's so lovely to see how these connections, I don't know, take a life of their own. Yes, absolutely. And I love Andy so much. So yes, Andy, thank you. Shout out (laughs) to you. We love you. (laughs) 
Hopefully we'll have tea time sometime with the three of us. <laughs> yeah, it totally would have tea time. It's so <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Genuinely, like, really nice person. So, yeah. all right. I know you have to go. So thank sure. you again for so thank much for your you. time. And I will see you on your podcast and we'll continue the conversation there. But thank you again. It's absolute pleasure and honor. And I hope we can continue it even beyond your podcast. So absolutely looking forward absolutely. to building our friendship. I'm looking forward to it as well. Thank you. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.